Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. As many of you know, we're approaching my favorite time of the year, uh, not Christmas, um, but the week after Christmas. I love the week after Christmas and New Year's, and this year we kind of get some extra space in there, and we hope that you will take advantage of this. Uh, we have been working hard as a church. We've been practicing this for years to finish the year well, not just to let it morph into the next year because we think it's going to be better than this year, but to really stop and think and consider what has happened, both the good and the bad. You're going to hear more about that this morning, both the good and the bad. The things that were hard and the things that were fun, the things that brought us life and the things that felt like near death, all these things we bring together. I wanna finish this year well to say, God, these things are sort of finished. This year is finished. Can we understand how it becomes usable to what you're doing in the future? We have a personal retreat that we would just uh, implore you to take advantage of. Uh, It's on, you can get on, you have a card and it's on the website. um, But this helps us to finish this year well. That's what we're working to do as we think about Revelation and um, for those of you, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but, but we've been kind of through, we're gonna finish Revelation today. Um, we're gonna cover all 22 chapters in four weeks. And uh, we described this a few weeks ago, like the mogul run, right? You've seen professional mogul skiers. They start at the top of the hill, like a straight down. It's just mogul after mogul. They just go, just beat themselves to death, take a jump, beat themselves to death some more. And then they get to the end. They're like, okay, great, what happened? And that's what it'll feel like um, today. So we're gonna hit about, a little bit of few moguls and then three more moguls and then we'll be done. We've been talking about Revelation because it seems to hold this idea of the end of of time, of what happens at the end of time. And a few, probably about a year ago, I sat down and read Revelation uh, from cover to cover, uh, just start to finish, all 22 chapters in one sitting. And it confirmed a couple of things for me. One is it is absolutely as bizarre as I'd always thought it was. Um, two is that, you know, it, well, the two surprises were that it reads very consistently with the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah. I never considered that before. But the end surprised me because the end wasn't what I had always sort of been led to imagine it to be. It was just something um, very different than what I had imagined. So I want us to kind of move into this with that in mind. And we've been using this uh, foundational passage as we explore seeking to celebrate Advent by celebrating the birth of Jesus, but acknowledging or learning to long for his return, to learn to want for him to return and what that means for you and for me and for the world uh, in which we live. And the, the, the passage that we sort of laid underneath this series comes out of Titus chapter two, verse 11. It says this, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. This, this grace that appeared, this, this Jesus himself teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And this isn't just that it teaches us to say no to the desires. It's all the things that we get pulled into it's all the things that pull us into things that are less or they're not of God. So it teaches us to live, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for this blessed hope. And this blessed hope, it says, is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us 
to purify for himself, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, a people who belong to him. And then it adds this, some versions say prepared or some versions say, this one says eager. It's, it's compelled, it's moved to goodness in the world. That what happens in us moves us outward. And so we've been looking at Revelation as these three cycles, which where we are restored as people, but then we also become a part of this people. As, as, as I'm purified and redeemed and you're purified and redeemed, we become this redeemed people who are purified. And out of this, we, we, I, gotta, I guess I gotta finish this. It's hard to draw hearts upside down. And we become a part of this people who are compelled into the world. And we begin to enter into a new system or a new way of justice, a new way of life under which the world begins to live. It's no longer this sort of evening the score, but there's a rule of God's love. We begin to learn to live in this way of life, which is, which is the way we act and live and participate in the world. And then what we often have thought most of our lives is at the end of this life, we go to heaven when we die. And that's the end of the story. But I'll tell you, that's not how the story of Revelation ends. The end of Revelation talks about this idea that heaven is reunited with the earth and that there's this, this reconciliation of all things, this return to what God had originally intended in the beginning. This is how the book of Revelation actually ends. And it was surprising to me, not only because of this idea, because I have just grown up not really having a vision for this, but rather think about what it's gonna be like there instead of what it's gonna be like here when all this is fully and finally brought to its consummation, to its completeness, to its fullness that God had intended when he started the whole thing in the first place. So if we read Revelation this way, it sort of changes how we think about it. So we're gonna begin our dive down the mogul run. What I'm gonna give you is just four things that I feel like I want you to consider um, as you're not, we're not going to solve all this today, as to, to consider that these are things that I feel like God has revealed in this book of Revelation to me, and I'm going to sort of offer them to you. Number one is that we can easily breathe life into the beast. I always thought this beast was something that was coming for me. What we have learned, and we have seen, I think, very clearly, if you weren't here last week, you have to go watch that message. But that the beast is really this way of life under the rule apart from God. And out of that sort of chaotic absence of God's love and his rule, we get sort of chaos. And then out of this chaos, we have to orchestrate and create our own systems of justice and our own systems of doing things. And this is what we get sort of brought into. This is what the beast is. It was, it's, it's empire. In Revelation, it's actually talked about as it's sort of named as Babylon. And you'll see Babylon take on this real uh, metaphorical sense where she becomes the icon and the, the object of what gets destroyed um, in Revelation, or one of the things that gets destroyed in Revelation. It's Babylon. And so it's this sense of empire. And we, you and I can easily breathe life into this image. We can easily be complicit in this. It's interesting, one of the things that's mentioned uh, in Revelation uh, chapter uh, 15 um, is the wine press 
there's the harvest of the grain and the harvest of the wine press. And it says he comes and he sickles the grain and he takes it with him, but he stomps out the wine press. He stomps out the grapes in the wine press. Right? This is, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Boom! This is what we expect. I'm going to ask myself, what is, what is he trampling? And a case can be made that what happens as God sort of assesses what's happened with Babylon, he uses this phrase. He says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her unfaithfulness. And it's, it's sort of perceived as this, all this rebellion, all this willingness to do things our own way and the whole world has become intoxicated with this sense that we can do things our way. It's not just evil like you would classify it. It's all of our complicity, all of us who drink from this fountain, all of us who drink from this chalice are complicit. And it's easy for us to fall in and to feed that, to say we can have life on our own terms. We can have life apart from God. And he's trampling this out. The second thing is we can easily reduce God into our image. We can easily make God sort of the way in which we get to do what we want to do. God, surely, if you were God, you would do it this way. And we sort of reduce him into our own image. And for a lot of us, the, the problem, the big problem with this is when we do this, we don't ever grow into his vision that he has for us. We reduce him to our vision of him. Um, Tish Harrison Warren uh, has written a book called, she's written several books, Prayers in the Night, and I'm gonna quote a couple from them. This is one of the things she says, and she just, I think, just gives us such a great picture of this. She says, we begin, when we, she, says, she talks about the fact that we, when we live like this, when we sort of buy into this way of life, we are reduced to mere agents of our own sexual expression and curated identities. And then we just present them to the world. Like this is all breathing life into the image of the beast. Here's what she says. We begin to approach God only to judge him and his actions according to our own preferences and little t truth. This is my truth. God, you're supposed to do this. We wait for God to convince us that he's actually a useful accessory in our own project of self-creation. In this way, so very subtly, we approach God, not in honest lament, but as unhappy customers. God isn't giving us what we want and he isn't taking away the pain of this world. And frankly, he's terribly slow. We are not pleased with the job that God is doing and the customer is always right. Number three, we can easily think God's justice is the means to even the score. And what we mean is that he's gonna punish everyone else because he's cool with me. He's gonna get those people. They're finally gonna know who God really is. They're finally gonna get what they deserve. I'm gonna get grace, but everybody else, they're getting something else. Number four, is that, and this is, this is where you're just gonna have to press and study and do your own research, but God's wrath isn't so much about what he does to, to us, about what God does to us. But rather, God's wrath seems to be, this is from Revelation, this is from Romans 1, this is from, from 1 Corinthians, this is from so many, this is from the Old Covenant, this is from so many places in the scriptures. 
But it's not just about what God does to us, but what we do to ourselves when God gives us over to our desires. It's, what the, it's the world that we create. And we say, we can do it without you. And I think that's what we live in. We live in this world. And so he's redeeming all these things. He's redeeming for himself a people, right? He's redeeming me. He's purifying me and he's purifying you, not so we can be good moral citizens in this beast, but so we can become removed, redeemed from that and live in a whole different way. This is, this is the picture that we get from Revelation. So that's where we've been. And I wanna, so, so what we need is a, is a vision for reconciliation. And a lot of us think reconciliation is just this place where we're gonna all sort of find agreement enough to get along. And whatever means of justice we use, whatever issue we face, if we can just balance this out, we'll have this sense of, 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 uh, of reconciliation. But he's asking us, calling us to live under a different rule. And the more you can understand that sin is not first and foremost a behavior problem, but it is an authority problem, you, you will never unsee this in the Bible again. If you can believe that to your toes. What was interesting to me is I began to think about this idea of redemption because redemption is fundamentally relational. It's a return and to, to what God has long established, to this calling for shalom and that justice, his acts of justice are, are restorative. He's restoring what he had intended. There's a way for us to experience that. If we don't live in that promise, we will be forced to live in the other, which is justice by retribution, which is where we will get what we have always asked for. Those are the two options. One is under the way that Jesus has invited us to live. The other one is the way in which we sort of create for ourselves. It's the beast, it's all of these things. If that, that's what I think this, this means. And we need a vision for reconciliation. So the way I define it is this. Reconciliation is the return of everything to the rule of God's love, everything. And what this requires is the gospel. What the gospel fundamentally does for us. A lot of us have long believed that, oh, the gospel is the ticket that we use to get into heaven when we die. We think of it as like, oh yeah, when we get there, St. Peter's gonna be sent at this gate and we're gonna like hand him the ticket. And he's gonna, oh, come on in, man, you got a ticket. And if we say no, he's gonna, oh, I don't know, you don't have a ticket. And it's, there, there's a, that's not even the picture that's given to us in the scriptures. And so we need a vision for what this looks like. And what, it, what Jesus said to us is that he has come and he said, my kingdom, repent, for the kingdom of God is near, is available, is at hand. He has said to us, right? He, he talks about coming and eating, coming and dining. He talk, that's the imagery, the metaphors that he uses to invite us in to receive and to live under his way of life. He talks about repentance and he comes specifically, he says, I've come to save sinners, to offer forgiveness. Most of us understand this idea of forgiveness. And what you think is that you had racked up a whole bunch of stuff on one side of the scales and that God's forgiveness sort of evened it out on the other side. Wrong system. Wrong system. I want to read you a couple of things. Then we're going to kind of walk through this uh, together. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. For he has rescued us from a dominion of darkness, a rule, a system of darkness. And he is what? He has brought us into the kingdom of the son whom he loves. And then you see this next phrase, in whom we have redemption, which is what? The forgiveness of sins. You start to see this connection of redemption and forgiveness of sins. Ephesians chapter one, verse seven and 10 says this, for in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness 
of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace which he has lavished upon us. We have all of this sort of given us. And what a lot of us have thought is that somehow forgiveness is, is a way to even the score. It's not a way to even the score. Forgiveness is the only way for us to live rightly within any relationship. Do you know why? You know what forgiveness fundamentally is? Forgiveness is that you don't owe anything. You live freely before someone, not owing them anything. And therefore others live freely before you, not owing you anything. You don't have to take anything from them. A lot of us, we don't even register with this because all of our lives are all give and take. It's all, if you do this, I'll do that. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You do the dishes, all right, you cook, I'll clean. You do this, I'll do that. Everything is done in this transactional way. And all of a sudden it comes in and says, and if someone doesn't do it, you feel like you were violated because they didn't do what, you, what, they, what they owed you, what they should have done. And forgiveness is a whole new way for us to live and to experience this fullness of relationship for which we've been created. And you're gonna have to just spend a decade thinking about that, but that's just where I got to today. And what happens is, so out of this, it goes on and it says, this is what gets really interesting. And so he's lavished upon us grace. And we pick up in verse eight, with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, uh, the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. And then here's the key. To put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, when everything is over, which is what? To bring unity to what? All things. Where? In heaven and on earth. This is in the Bible. This is in the Bible. It's everywhere in the Bible. So how this means to Revelation. So if you, let me back up one more time. I was trying to think about this because now we talk about this returning king. Jesus is returning. That's what we're looking for in Revelation. And in that, what you begin to see, and I thought about this in this, the temptations of Jesus. Jesus was tempted in the desert right before his public ministry, right? Luke 4, Matthew chapter 4. And he's tempted in three ways, if you remember. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Satan encounters him and says, hey man, if you're the son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Now, how long would it take you to do that if you hadn't eaten in 40 days? I'd turn them into Twinkies or something, but it would be quick. He said, turn these stones into bread. What does Jesus say? Man shall not live by, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. By every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then he takes him to the temple. And he says, I want you to throw yourself off the temple. And God's not gonna let you get hurt. And he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then he takes him to the tallest peak. And he says, here's all the nations of the world, all the power you could ever imagine. I'll give it to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God only and have no other gods before him. And we kind of go on with that, but do you, do you understand what, what he's doing, what happens? If we think about this insulation that we sort of want to be protected from things, what you see is there's this insulation, temptation, the bread is insulation from need. If you can turn stones into bread, you will never need ever again. You can just make it happen. Taking him up to the temple is to insulate you from harm. It means you can do risky things and not bear the consequences of them. It means you can indulge in whatever you want to do and not feel the effects. It won't shape you or harm you. A lot of us, we wonder why we've indulged in all these things and then our hearts ache and our souls are split apart because we long to be insulated from the harm. This is exactly the temptation. The last one is you can have power without responsibility. 
Do any people I talk to in our culture want to be influencers? Want to be influencers without any responsibility for the influence that's been given to you? If someone does what you say or follows you in a particular way, do you take responsibility for what it is that you have offered to them or given to them? To be insulated from response, that's how our whole, that's, that's the game in the world system. This is exactly what Jesus says. Oh, no, no, we, we, we worship it. We have a different rule, a different reign. This is what I mean by this. And what he says out of this is that we need patient endurance and we need all this stuff. So here comes King Jesus. And I want you to just get this picture in your head. Most of the time through Revelation, when we have thought one thing, we have turned and seen something different, right? We thought this was the lion of Judah, the root of David coming to conquest. And we turned and we saw a lamb as though he was slain. Ready? So here goes mogul number one out of three. We'll do three moguls and then we'll be done. Revelation, number, uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. I saw heaven standing open and there was before me a white horse. Here comes Jesus. Here comes King Jesus. And most all of us have a picture in our heads, right? Whose rider is called faithful and true with justice. He judges and he wages war and his eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. This is like one upping the beast who only had 10. He's got like a bunch of them on his head. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. His, he is dressed in a robe that is dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. This is a, this is like, whoa, this is about to go down. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen and white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He quotes from Psalm chapter, uh, I think 22 or 80 somewhere, quotes from Psalm. Then it says, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's coming. People used to always use this verse to justify getting tattoos because he said, even Jesus has a tattoo on his leg. <laughs> but you gotta have some girth on your thigh to fit King of Kings and Lord of Lords down it. So there's some surprise. So, this, so we got this picture in our head, right? Oh, he's coming. And then we turn and we look and we notice a couple of things that are interesting. That before the battle even begins, his robe is already bloodied. Before, before there's ever been a battle, his robe is bloodied. Because we were looking for the root of David and the line of Judah and we turn and we saw a lamb who had been slain to provide victory before the battle even began. In fact, if you keep reading, there actually is no battle. It's over before it begins. This is all in Revelation. That's thing one. Thing two is where's the sword? The sword isn't in his hand. Shoo, that's what I was hoping. It's in his mouth. It talks about him killing and all. It does talk about that. But the, the imagery to me is I go to Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. And it says the word of God. And it's not talking in that passage about the Bible. It's talking about what God has to say, what proceeds out of God's mouth. The word of God is living and it is active. It is able to pierce so far as this dividing the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It lays us open and bare before the one for whom or to whom we must give an account. And like, what's this picture that, that he comes and he lays human beings open before him to do what? to ensure that there's the reconciliation of all things to himself. 
And we could go on and on and on and on. But I want to keep reading. Revelation chapter 21. Then here comes the, sort of this final culmination of what's happening. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I mean, we'll use this to say, Mike, there's no serpent in heaven. That's baloney because there's, there's a river. But, it also, but even that, the point is not that there's in heaven. It's because it's, it's, it's reconciled. It's returned. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. He is returning to be God with us fully and finally. Then he says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order, there's that, there's that idea again. The old rule is gone. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is Genesis language. I am recreating, redeeming, returning everything to the way it was. I'm making everything new. And then he says, write these words down for these are trustworthy and true. And then he said to me, it is done. This is again, it's just, this is like, this is the, the, the proclamation of what Jesus finished on the cross is now coming to fruition. It is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, right? We understand that language. And then he adds this to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. He's making all things new. But before he does, I want to pause and just under, help us understand what redemption is. I, I've, I've shown this because for years, I thought the church was to solve issues. Here's the problem, find a solution. And I began to realize and understand that what God's promise is, isn't solutions to problems, it's redemption, redemption of all things. And that means that what has happened to us isn't in vain and it isn't wasted. Redemption is the stubborn refusal or the stubborn belief that God uses everything, that nothing is ever wasted. And again, from Tish Harrison Warren, she writes this, redemption itself does not skip over darkness, but demands that every last tear run. Christians believe that the place of eternal joy not only exists, but is more real than the diminished place of sorrow and pain that we now know. The image of God wiping away our tears could, of course, be a metaphor, a statement that all things will at last be well. But what if it's not strictly poetic language? I love this. What if in the face of our maker, we get one last chance to honor all the losses that this life has brought? What if we can stand before God someday and hear our life stories told for the first time accurately and in their entirety with all the twists and turns and meaning we couldn't follow when we lived through them? What if the story includes a darkness of suffering, all the wounds we've received and given to others, all the horror of capital D death. And we get to weep one last time with God himself. What if before we begin to live in a world where all things are made new, 
We weep with the one who alone is able to permanently wipe away our tears. Is that not unbelievable? It is unbelievable to think that this is, you know, to me, I'm like, this is the God that I I hoped he would be. This picture of Revelation seems like he's coming to like destroy. He's coming to restore and to redeem all that has been broken and lost. It's not lost on him what you have been through or what I've been through or what we've experienced. It's not lost on him. And redemption doesn't gloss over. It just grabs a hold of it. John continues, we're going to give him the last word because this is how the book ends. And some of you will be glad this is how it starts, sounds like it's going to end. And then you're going to realize it doesn't end like you think it's going to end. Verse 22, look. I'm sorry, verse 12 of chapter 22. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they've done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are all those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Does this sound like Genesis to you? The tree of life? All this? We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna get a whole new reset. And we're gonna wash our, our robes. We're gonna be clothed in the blood of Jesus. We're gonna have received the forgiveness that he offers so we enter into those gates not owing God our promises to be better, but rather to exist in the fullness that he has made available for us. He's made available for you and for me. And then he says, outside, here's our list, are the dogs. Not the Georgia dogs, but the other dogs, all the dogs. Those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And immediately we, in our human understanding of justice, try to figure out what, it, which, what, what have we done? What have we violated on that list? And if I had another hour, I could go through every single one of those, those things and tell you why they are probably not what you think they are. Because you're gonna try to go, oh, here's sexually immoral or here's this and I haven't done this, but I did do this. You're gonna try to find the loophole that you can say, oh, I didn't do that. And it's not about that at all. Every single one of those things has to do with where we place our security in being able to have life on our terms. And the ones who wash their robes are the one who enter in and say, oh, he came and he was a slain lamb and I've received what he's done and I've received his forgiveness and now I owe him nothing and I can receive from him the life that he's made available to me. In fact, this is the invitation. This is John having the last word. This doesn't end the way I thought it was. There's not a victory lap for the conquest. Instead, it ends with an invitation. Here's what it says. This is just Revelation 22. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you to give this testimony to the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life, let them come. One of the line is, the line of your faith to inherit the city, the kingdom, the way of Jesus, it's your thirst. It's your thirst and your willingness to come and drink from what he 
offers us. This is the language throughout the whole thing. This invitation is the foundation of our blessed hope that somehow what God asks of us in the very end is to all who are thirsty, let them come. There are a lot of people who keep trying to satisfy themselves with all the other stuff and they don't even know that they're thirsty. But to the one who's thirsty, let him come into the gates and experience, right, this place, this way of life that is consummated and is finally the way God had always intended it to be and that you and I will finally live the way we've always dreamed that we could. And it will be the reconciliation, not of us going there, but of heaven and earth and this way of life under the rule of God's love in anything and everything that threatens to undermine it will be permanently placed outside the gates. This is the picture in the book of Revelation. So as we celebrate Christmas, right, peace on earth and goodwill to men, the hope there could be peace on earth. What Jesus did for us, and this is why forgiveness is so important, because a lot of us keep thinking, how could this be? And we read this in Isaiah 53, that Jesus bore our sin and our shame and our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And the call then for us is to go ahead and begin living in such a way of what has been done. And it's a reminder that we need to be patient. We need to endure. And we need to be faithful. That our patient endurance, we need to deal with the world as it is. And our faithfulness to offer ourselves for what God intends it to be. What are we willing to do? But it's also a reminder that our patient endurance and faithfulness actually matters. Because the peace on earth will be experienced through the peace that you and I are willing to live. So that's the end of the mogul run. How'd it feel? Here's the thing. Some of you are here and you're still trying to figure out how God could be cool with you because of all the things that you've done. You know what he says? Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Then why don't you come? You don't have to justify. You don't have to rationalize. To all, This is how Revelation ends. This is good news, isn't it? It's like what we thought God might actually be like. He's made us for himself and our hearts will never be satisfied until we find ourselves in him. He invites us to come. Father, in this world, we will have trouble. We take heart because you have overcome the, the way in which this world operates. We get to live in a different way, a distinct way. We get to draw life from you. We get to have our hunger satisfied in you and our thirst quenched in you. Father, there are many, perhaps in this room, who feel like they have done too many things. God, I ask that they would, among all this, would hear your invitation. If you're thirsty, come. 
God, that as we learn how to live this way of life under the rule of your love, Father, may it bear, bear on the world around us. Rather than being complicit, would we be redemptive? Rather than being critical, would we become sacrificial? By believing that what you have asked of us is to give ourselves under the rule of your love for the sake of your desire to reconcile all things to yourself. So I ask this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, who is our coming King. Amen.